Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Addy Hour podcast. I was just telling today's two guests, this is actually episode 41, which is hard for me to believe. So we're continuing to move forward, continuing to go strong. Um, and again, it's always been great just to see the feedback from you all as listeners, um, people who have uh, chased me down on campus to tell me how important these conversations have been, people who have reached out to me by email, people I've just seen in the community who've told me how much these conversations uh, really impact them and help them think through aspects that you might be walking through in your own life, but also different perspectives. Um, so today we have a really special conversation. As you all know, I'm a neuroscientist and we're gonna be really leaning into the neuroscience piece today, but also thinking about neuroscience and mental health research and what that has to do with, with society and whether we feel like that's impact or flop or a little bit of both. So I'll throw that out there as a provocative question for you all. But I have two great guests who are gonna join this conversation today, Dr. Diana Martinez and Dr. Steve Mahler. I'll give them both a little bit of an introduction and let you hear from them as well. To start with Dr. Diana Martinez, she is a professor of psychiatry at the Columbia University Irving Medical Center. She's actually originally from Texas, went to college in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where she studied philosophy. She then moved to New York State to attend medical school with a plan to return to Texas, but instead she became a psychiatrist who researches neuroscience, the neuroscience of addiction, and has also become a New Yorker in her own words. So maybe we'll hear more about that as well. So in addition to her research career, she has two sons, and as they grew up and became teenagers, she recognized and realized that the science could be used to have a conversation about drugs, health, and safety. So she now gives seminars to parents and educators and high school students where she talks about the risks of drugs and how science-based education can be used to improve safety. So Deanna, thank you so much for being here on the podcast and thank you for all the work you do as well. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. And, uh, you know, I do love neuroscience and New York City. So it's good. <laughs> that's a good combination. Good combination. Mm -hmm. Our second guest is Dr. Steve Mahler, who is an associate professor of neurobiology and behavior at UC Irvine. He has a PhD in biopsychology from the University of Michigan and has been researching how addiction and other psychiatric disorders work in terms of work in the brains of both humans and rodents, and he's been doing this for over 20 years. Today, he's a behavioral neuroscientist trying to understand how processes in the brain go awry in psychiatric disorders. He uses rats as a preclinical model. He's someone who loves to talk about neuroscience. I'll also ask, I'll also add that he's a gifted science communicator. 
And he also is good about really learning from established scientists, from the trainees he teaches and from the mentors. So a really holistic approach in that sense, not just assuming that he knows all the information is the, the quote unquote expert in the room, but really kind of having collaborative conversations in the work that he does. Um, also does a lot of uh, impact in terms of having other people communicate their science to the public, which is one of the reasons I was really excited to have him here on the podcast. So I want to welcome Dr. Steve Muller as well. Thank you so much, Nia. It's an honor to be here. We'll definitely appreciate both of you being here. Looking forward to jumping into this conversation. And just by way of context for all of you, the three of us were actually together at a conference last August, uh, Gordon Research Conference on the Neurobiology of Addiction. Um, and at that conference, uh, Steve was reminding me that we actually heard a very intriguing talk from Diana about philosophy and how that actually impacts how we think about addiction and neuroscience and mental health. Steve and I actually had a really extended conversation after that really thought-provoking in a lot of ways. So we may loop that into this conversation today as well. But you all are really in for a treat in terms of hearing from both of these individuals and all the wonderful work that they're doing to really help us think about things in a different way. And again, we'll get back to that question about where are we at as a society in a field? Like, do we actually use and understand science as we should, or are there ways that we can improve? So <laughs> and as I'm talking on screen, I'm seeing some head reactions from both our guests. So I know that there'll be a lot to talk about there. But as my listeners know, I always like to just start checking in with our guests just to see how you're doing day to day um, in the state that we're in, uh, you know, this point in May of 2023 with everything we've experienced the last few years, everything that we're continuing to navigate, the new things that we're uh, navigating as well. So Diana, if we could just start with you and just hear, you know, how you're doing today and what occupies you on a day-to-day -day basis? Ah, good, good question. I'm, what, what can I say? It's finally spring in New York. It's finally warm. And one, my older son is away at a, a abroad, semester abroad. He's coming home soon. So I'm pretty excited. Oh, nice. <laughs> I haven't yep. seen him in a while. The longest I've gone without seeing him. And, um, you know, it's, it's a great time. It's, it's grant season, as usual. You know, we all follow the cycles. Mm -hmm. And certainly when it comes to the news and current events, you know, I try and, and look for the positives and hope for the best. Um, there's, it's always a, a roller coaster ride when we think of, of current events. So, um, but other than that, you know, things are going great. That's great to hear. It sounds like a uh, refreshing time in a lot of ways you know, with spring, things you're anticipating. I don't know if you're anticipating with excitement for grant season in the same way you're anticipating having your son come home, but maybe not. <laughs> actually, I actually like writing grants. Like I like the science of it. I mm. administrative part is miserable, but we mm. have a fantastic <laughs> administrator who takes care of that. So it's actually kind of fun. That's great to hear. That's really great to hear. Something I've definitely shared with people as well in terms of the excitement for the ideas. Right. Um, and so that's... Uh, Obviously, you're in the right place if that's that's your mode of operation. Um, just as an aside to uh, trainees who are listening, that's always something to pay attention to as well, because if that's something that's completely onerous for you all the way around, you may want to think about just different aspects you want to get into, or if there are aspects of it that you like and some that you don't, to also think creatively about what would actually fit in terms of career options um, and things you might be looking into. So just a little bit of an aside you know, tidbit as we have that conversation. Steve, why don't we uh, jump to you and see how you're doing these days? I'm doing pretty well. Um, the A lot of changes in my life over the course of the uh, last few years, um, as probably everyone could almost say the same type of thing. But in my case, um, I got married. I had my first baby. Uh, about Congratulations. Six ago, so thank you. So um, You look um, very alert, by the way. <laughs> well, everything is relative, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's been, uh, it's been really fantastic, you know, really... Uh, 
some ways challenging. In some ways, it's a huge change in um, my perspective on on life and and on development. Uh, even uh, looking at kind of um, how my little daughter is learning how to do different things and how they come and kind of come online, and it's just really exciting to see these kinds of things in person. Um, especially given that we are doing some developmental research in my lab as well, trying to understand some risk factors for addiction and other kinds of psychiatric disorders and trying to uh, not do the wrong thing. It's always on my mind. Mm. So uh, it's been fun, but I, yeah, I wouldn't uh, trade it for anything. That's great to hear. Well, thanks for giving us that, that full context too, just in terms of life events and also how it's changing your perspective um, as you move forward as well. I mean, in some ways, that's a similar theme between the two of you. Granted, maybe different life stages, but as uh, Diana got into some of her work in the schools as her sons were getting older, and then Steve, as you're thinking about the work you're doing in the context of watching your daughter grow and develop at these really early uh, stages of life as well. So it's, it's refreshing to hear as well. So on that note, maybe Steve will loop back to you. I just wanted to give our listeners also a sense of how you got, how you both got into your professions. And if I can even go a step further, say your calling um, uh, up to this point. So anything you'd want to share with our listeners about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, like most, I think most scientific careers, uh, mine was not something that I had in mind early on. Uh, it was uh, Definitely um, one of those things that just kind of life comes at you kind of thing. So as an undergraduate, I was uh, I, I took my first class in psychology, I think as a sophomore at Loyola mm -hmm. University in Chicago, and I had a great professor. So this is one of the themes I think comes up in careers a lot of times is you just have an inspiring person that can kind of make you think about, uh, you know, the world in a different way in some ways. And um, so I got really interested in psychology and I started doing social psychology research uh, in my undergraduate time. Um, and I knew I was really interested in psychology, but giving, um, you know, undergraduate psychology students uh, surveys was underwhelming. Like I felt mm. like there's there's a lot of, um, ex, you know, all the really interesting questions had been basically asked already. And, you know, kind of diving into these more uh, smaller and smaller details. And, and in some ways, I, I realized I loved the scientific process, but that wasn't the way I wanted to go about it. And so... Okay. Unfortunately, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I applied to a bunch of graduate schools, uh, thinking, well, that's what people do in psychology, and uh, I think I applied to nine PhD programs, um, and I got into none of them, mm. and um, mostly because I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> and mm. so um, I was fortunate that I uh, was, my application was transferred to a terminal master's program at the University of Chicago, okay. and I was fortunate to meet another person that was truly pivotal in my career. Um, this is Dr. Harriet DeWitt, who is a human psychopharmacology researcher. She kind of wanted to know how drugs work in the brain and how they change behavior and, and that kind of thing. And, um, and she really put me on to the idea of neuroscience of addiction. And so after doing some studies with her on alcohol and, and nicotine, especially, and craving and things like that, and how that relates to relapse and such, I um, was fortunate to um, get into the University of Michigan the second time I applied to PhD programs and worked with Kent Barrage, who is a theorist of um, kind of what does dopamine do in reward and, and behavior and so on. And so I did my, um, I didn't actually work on dopamine too much there, but I did uh, look at the, some of the, the brain substrates now in rats okay. of addiction related behaviors or motivated behaviors. Um, then into a postdoc, I, I started to look more specifically at addiction, training rats to take drugs and trying to understand what that does in the brain. And mm -hmm. especially I'm going to become more and more interested in individual differences, why some individuals get addicted when they try drugs and others don't. And that's kind of what's been driving me uh, since then. And since I started my own lab about eight years ago at, in, in Irvine, California, 
Um, I've really been trying to dive into those issues and what's the difference between, you know, someone who gets addicted, someone who doesn't, someone who has other kinds of, um, you know, problems uh, in terms of psychiatric disorders, depression, and so on as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of, in a nutshell, where how I got here. Yeah, that's great. Well, definitely appreciate the work that you do um, in terms of understanding addiction, but then also some of the coexistence with other psychiatric illnesses, but then also just appreciate the context that you gave as well. I mean, I've said this several times in several other contexts, but I think it's always helpful to hear people's stories. I mean, there are aspects of your story that I'm hearing for the first time, and also to learn about your resilience and pivoting in the middle of that too, you know, applying to nine graduate schools and not getting into any of them at the beginning. I think sometimes there's a tendency for all of us, but especially students or trainees coming up to think that that all the professors just kind of had a straight path and that things just kind of all fell in order. And then you knew this is what you're going to do. And then you stepped into this position without knowing the journey along the way. So I imagine that people hearing about that aspect of your journey and how you were able to actually get a better sense of what you wanted will actually help people who might be in the middle of feeling confused or not knowing which direction to go or getting rejected from a school and not knowing if they should continue. So I really appreciate that as well. Yeah, I just uh, note that sometimes you know, if I think if I had gotten into grad school that first time, I don't think I would be here. Mm. Um, sometimes, you know, life just happens the way it does. You know, you could say for a reason or, you know, it's been calling or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, sometimes your best laid plans are are not the way things go. And maybe that's for the best in the long run. Yeah, really well said. Really well said. Diana, how about you? Your path, as we've heard a little bit about from your bio, but it sounds like it wasn't the path you predicted. Definitely not. So I I went to high school, I grew up in rural Texas. And the town that I went to high school in, like, no one really went to college. Mm. Um, And most people didn't finish high school. And so I actually never did graduate from high school. I thought I knew better. I had a job in 12th grade. Um, I was like, you know, why go to school when I can have like a car and a a job that pays minimum wage? Seemed great at the time. (laughs) And didn't really see the need to move forward. But after the year during which I should have been finishing high school, I did decide to go to college after all. And because I didn't have a high school diploma, I wasn't really eligible for most colleges. I ended up at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, because they didn't require a high school diploma or an SAT score. And um, I got there not really even knowing what philosophy was. Everyone at St. John's gets a degree in philosophy. I honestly thought I'd be reading a lot of Kurt Vonnegut novels. Um, and instead, I discovered that philosophy was really quite difficult, but it was a fantastic school. It was amazing. You know, we read philosophy, we read, you know, scientific papers, we read Newton's Principia, we read all the quantum physics papers. And they were they were incredible. And at the time, I thought, oh, maybe I want to be a physicist, um, not really knowing what all that entailed. And there was a professor at St. John's who used to take some students up to Los Alamos National Laboratories. And um, at Los Alamos, at the laboratories, I met some physicists and they were okay. They weren't that friendly, but I met two physicians who were working on viral disorders, viral mm. diseases. And I thought they were the, the greatest. So that's actually why I decided to go to, to medical school instead of anything else. And actually, similarly, I applied to all the medical schools in Texas and got into none. Mm. Uh, but I got into medical school in New York City at, at Cornell. And um, I remember the day I interviewed, I wore a borrowed dress and some high heels and it was early January it was probably one of the worst days of my life I'd only lived in Texas Mexico and New Mexico before then and I had never faced anything like the gray sludgy slushy snow and uh it, it was it was 
the interviews, each one was worse than the one before it. I thought for sure I wasn't in. Mm. And I met with the associate dean who was in charge of admissions, who is an incredibly kind, thoughtful person who I do think gave me the chance at, at this. And um, I told him that I was never going to come to the school and don't even bother to, to accept me. Wow. And his response was, really, you're going to throw everything away because of one bad day? And wow. then, sure enough, I ended up at, at medical school. And even in medical school, my plan was to return to Texas and be a primary care doctor in rural Texas. Mm -hmm. By the end of the four years, I was like, no, I'm going to do psychiatry instead. And then I ended up in neuroscience research. And it was definitely, you know, some accidents along the way, a lot of, you know, as, as Steve had mentioned, some, you know, some you know, powerful mentors along the way. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how I ended up here. Wow. That's great to hear. I mean, definitely appreciate that context as well. And so many parallels in your stories too, which I did not anticipate just in terms, definitely in terms of not what you had planned, but even in terms of, you know, not getting into schools you'd apply to the strong role, as you mentioned, of the mentors really kind of shaping and re redirecting you um, and just having, again, some of that, that resilience to you. So I think that speaks, that speaks volumes. As a, as a follow-up, I'm curious how you think your path actually impacts you on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, just like the, the, the navigation that you had to take to get to the current stage and some of the serendipity, if you want to call it, uh, like how does that actually impact what you do in your perspective? And Deanna, we can start with you. You know, I definitely view it as, you know, the, I think a lot of life is hard work, but a lot of it is luck and mm. just sort of lining up. And I'm always incredibly grateful for that. And, you know, the joke in my family is that, you know, if, if there had been one missed opportunity, I'd probably be working at the Walmart in Falfurias, Texas, although my mom says I'd be the manager. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, that seems you know, appropriate for mom to say and probably true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just and so I, I try to be mindful of that, like, mm. you know, and we we all tend to you, you things that we've earned feel very earned, but really like so much is just chance. Mm. And so I'm grateful for those chances and recognize that that doesn't happen all the time mm. to other people and to, you know, small circumstances for us had incredibly powerfully positive outcomes, but sometimes mm. it gets away. And mm. that's why I see a lot in my research studies. People who have substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful perspective. Steve, what about you? Um, well, I certainly resonate with the idea of uh, both hard work and luck being extremely important in this kind of career. Um, this is something I always try to convey to, to trainees is that there's some things you can control and some things you can't. Mm. And you kind of want to try to learn what is the difference between those things and then put yourself in positions where you can make choices. Mm -hmm. This is to me the best career advice that I, I know how to give, I think, is, is putting yourself in a place where you have not just one option that you must do because that's the only thing on the table. Uh, if you can get yourself in a place where you can choose between A and B, that's almost always going to be better. And, um, and also being open to things that you didn't expect to be the mm. choice you're about to make. You know, those are, those are, that's certainly how my career came about. I've seen many other scientists that, that have that, um, that aspect to their, their careers as well. They just, you know, being open-minded and, and taking opportunities when they, when they come or when you put yourself in front of them. And then I guess in terms of um, how my, uh, you, you know, history affects my current perspective on science, um, I certainly consider myself a psychologist, mm. even though I do studies in rats, and a lot of it is very, you know, molecular neuroscience, genetics, and so on. Um, we, I'm very much coming from a psychological perspective, and that's really how I 
um, try to approach the, the rat brain, trying to understand um, what are psychological processes that might exist in both humans and rats, and how can we, you know, if we can understand them then in rats, maybe we can get some insights into humans, but also not expecting that that's always going to be the case. Mm -hmm. It's really important to recognize they're not just little furry humans. And um, even when they, for example, take drugs uh, voluntarily in my lab, which is what humans are doing in addiction, mm -hmm. there are some key differences in most of the studies that people do. Um, for example, the rats don't have much else going on in their lives, so why wouldn't they take drugs? Maybe it's mm. sort of not a disorder for them in some ways. So these are the kinds of questions I, I really think about a lot in my own lab um, and ways to try to improve our rat models. And um, that certainly comes from my my training history and the experiences I've had along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really great perspective and appreciate the words of wisdom that you all are sharing for people coming up as well. Because I think, again, it's a theme that comes up repeatedly. I, mean, I definitely hear that from more senior scientists so even thinking about some of the folks at Yale Dr. George Henninger is one that comes to mind who really facilitated and started a lot of molecular psychiatry work there but hearing his story and how there were so many things that he didn't anticipate and basically him just saying saying like both of you that he was just ready for the opportunities that came even though things that he really wanted to do fell apart things that he never planned to do opened up and just being ready to kind of jump into those opportunities so I appreciate the way you both uh, mentioned that context as well um, and again, it seems like it's impacting your work uh, in so many ways, even as you think about how you frame things as a psychologist who's doing neuroscience or as a physician. And so I think that's really, really healthy as well. To pick up, Steve, where you left off in terms of some of the addiction work and things like that, it's going to be a pretty hard pivot but or a quick pivot, but I'd be curious if you both also could talk a little bit about what you think the role of science is for society. And Steve, you already hinted at that in terms of some things translate to humans, some things don't. Like what, what do you see as that role? And to layer it a little bit, and you can come back to this if you want. Also, just thinking about all the mixed feelings that people have in society in terms of pro-science, anti-science, rodents in science, and is that helpful? Or are we doing things that we shouldn't be doing? So I know that's a whole nother layer. So you don't have to go too much into that. We can come back to that as well. But I wanted to at least put it in that broader context as well. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, there's there's sort of two things that that are, are behind my drive to, to ask the kinds of questions that I try to ask in my own mm -hmm. life. Um, one of them has to do with ultimately helping people and society by mm -hmm. helping to perhaps treat some of these or, or come up with new treatment strategies, at least for uh, some of these psychiatric disorders, which are devastating mm. for so many lives, including in my own family. Mm. Um, I will say that this is a huge part of why I'm studying addiction is when I was in high school and thinking about what I'm going to do with my life, my uncle, um, he overdosed of a, a, a heroin at the mm. time. Um, and so he was a close uncle and, you know, kind of always took a special shine to myself and my brother. And, um, and that just really kind of, um, you know, just gave like a sort of fire under <laughs> under yeah. me in some ways to to just to try to figure out why would someone just throw away their life like that, you know, for something that just doesn't make any sense. And and seeing also him at the towards the end, um, you know, my grandparents who he had lived with, uh, they they had um, dementia, and so they were kind of declining pretty quickly, and they had a live-in kind of caretaker, mm -hmm. and they were, you know, he was coming by all the time and, and just causing all these problems, and he was just being a jerk, you know, mm -hmm. he was just he was stealing all the time, he was threatening the, the caretaker, and it was getting to be a dangerous situation, it just was just so, it really opened my eyes to see someone who, you know, I loved and I was close to yeah. um, just turn into a different person. 
Um, so, so obviously, this is something that I think that we need to do better in, in, in neuroscience is trying to come up with a better understanding of how the brain works normally and how it mm -hmm. works in the context of addiction. How do some of these processes actually work in the hopes that we then can leverage that information to actually come up with new treatment strategies? And then the other thing that really drives me um, is, is this idea of, uh, and actually, um, Dr. Martinez, you mentioned that you were originally interested in physics, and, and that's something that I also, another commonality we have, um, mm -hmm. I didn't find myself especially good at physics, I don't think, but, um, but the idea of kind of understanding where the, what's going on with the universe, like how did the, where do we come from in that way? Um, it just struck me as one of the biggest questions and one of the biggest mysteries out there. And, um, and so I kind of had in mind that that was something that I would perhaps like to pursue in, a, in an intellectual way. Um, but then I came upon neuroscience and I realized that there's like almost as big of a mystery right here inside of our heads. And so that gen just really, you know, the rest is sort of history, um, trying, to, trying to pursue um, these really huge questions that are deeply meaningful for what it is to be human and what it is to be, you know, a person in society. Um, that's so that's I guess the two pillars of of kind of um my take on your question there yeah well, that's really really helpful perspective as well and I appreciate you know you kind of sharing where that initial passion and then fire came from in a lot of ways as well do you want know, to anything you want to react to and what Stephen said or even to answer the question for yourself as well sure so if we go to you know how does how does science fit in with society I think it's it's a very compelling question um I've I've a number of years ago, as I as you mentioned, my bio, I started giving talks to high school students. Mm -hmm. And you know, my older son is now 20, and he was about 15 when he was in high school. There was a party where everyone was drinking at the party, and a girl fell out of a window in a New York City apartment mm -hmm. building and didn't survive. Wow. And when I heard this story, I was just like, these are the things that happened when I was in high school, and it's still, you know, another generation, and we're still having these issues happen um, from teenage drug use. So I started to take, I decided to take the science and go start talking to parents, educators, and teenagers. And, you know, it was hard because the first thing I want to do when, when you're a parent, you have your kids is you'll, when they're teenagers, you want to be like, don't use drugs, you'll die. Don't use drugs, terrible things happen, you know, but it doesn't work. You know, we know it doesn't work. And so I decided to follow the model of science-based sex education, mm. where we know abstinence pledges don't work. Um, and so what I've been doing in talking to high school students, generally I start with the parents, is just sort of say, you know, experimentation happens. Um, I don't think parents should necessarily be helping that with, you know, parties or whatever at, at their houses, but we have to have talk to kids about safety. We have to talk to them about what accidents look like. We have to talk about what an overdose looks like, because mm -hmm. actually teenagers right now are the fastest growing population of overdose victims mm -hmm. when it comes wow. to opioids. And half of all assaults involve drugs as well. So when I go into schools, I completely stick with the science. You know, what my conversations with drugs with my own kids and our, our own values are different than the science. With my own kids, I do use the science as well, but I find it actually incredibly refreshing. Like teenagers, mm. say, listen, I go in, I show PET scans, I show data, I show data, I show data on like, how do you help a friend? How do you know what an overdose looks like? And when do you get help? And when does somebody need naloxone? And when do you call 911? Um, I talk about what problematic drug use looks like, especially in the setting of self-medication, talking about like kids with depression, anxiety, ADHD are much more likely to be using drugs because mm -hmm. they feel better faster mm -hmm. and it's easier to get your hands on uh, an edible than it is to get psychiatric care, right? So, yeah, uh, and, and how, right? And yeah. so talk about like what problematic drug use looks like. And I think we have to have these very frank conversations mm -hmm 
with teenagers if we're going to do anything about um, honestly future addiction because most drug problems do begin in the teenage years. And it was kind of terrifying at first, to be honest with you. Um, not just because I wasn't telling people, you know, don't do drugs, but because I was really talking about the science and I had to learn how to phrase it in a way that wasn't off-putting yeah. and wasn't annoying. And frankly, I found that teenagers like it a lot more. When I talk, now when I talk to, to parents, I sort of, I focus on the like, you know, the, the doom and gloom, <laughs> the, the risks, you know, we're all going to die, right? <laughs> When I talk to teenagers, I don't do that at all. Mm -hmm. um, I really just stick with the data. And it's it's refreshing to have it be very well received. Mm. So I have hope for the, this younger generation, I have to say. Um, you know, I think it's a time when before we have these ideas of, you know, before we have our, our fixed ideas and we want the science to support what we believe in, mm -hmm. in some ways, you know, teenagers just seem to be much more open to information and data. I guess, you know, they're still in school all the time and they know a lot, you know, they get on their phones and they look stuff up. So I don't dare say anything that isn't backed up by data because I know yeah. they'll call me out in, in a minute. I'm curious what, the, do you do ever do a Q and A? Because like you said, oh, yeah. teens get a lot of information. So at least in my experience, there's often times where people just want to ask a scientist a question. Like I saw this, is this legit? Is it not? Or I think it's legit. Are you going to convince me? I'm just curious what, like, what does that actually look like when you do Q and A's? I've been experiment, you know, I've been experimenting with a format, a fair amount. Mm -hmm. It's easier with, with parents, you know, it's easier, you know, but with, with, uh, with high school students, at first I was talking to schools and I got a very limited amount of time and it just doesn't work. You have to have the Q and A. Yeah. So now what I've been doing is asking for a lot more time. And, and the best luck I've had is actually with the school right around the corner from here. It's on 158 in Amsterdam where the students set up a mental health club. Mm. And I spoke, I was there for two hours answering questions. Yeah. <laughs> and it was one of the best times I've ever had in my job. Wow. Wow. That's Fantastic great. Fantastic questions. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems like, I mean, that's just obviously just a sample of one, but it seems like an ideal way to go to really just open things up. And the fact that they have that mental health club already, mm -hmm. I mean, hearing from my own, my own teenagers about the lack of conversations around these things sometimes, I mean, Surprisingly, it seems like, and I could be wrong on this, but it seems like a lot of teenagers actually want the schools to talk about it more, at least Absolutely. in the conversations I've had and the, the schools that I've gone to and talked, but sometimes I'm not sure why this is, but it seems like maybe there's a perception among our, our age group that they don't want it or we're talking about it too much, but that just not has, been, has not been my experience talking to students in the classroom. Absolutely. They're very interested in psychiatric disorders. We talk about the symptoms. We talk about treatments. And I talk a lot about the interaction between having, you know, mental health issues and mm -hmm. drug use and what that looks like. Yeah. Well, definitely appreciate the work you're doing. And again, I mean, I'm just hearing so many themes uh, between what you're both sharing from different perspectives and starting points, but with a lot of commonalities as well. Stephen, is there anything you wanted to kind of jump in on? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, what you were just saying um, really resonates with me as well in the in the outreach I've I've done to to various age people. Um, probably not nearly as well as you, but uh, but you know, try. And um, I will say also from my personal experience, when I was coming up and um, starting to learn for the first time about drugs, it was in the context of uh, the '80s uh, kind of war on drugs um, mm -hmm. with Just Say No and and Dare and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, and I actually think in that case, there was some aspects of that, quote, education that were ended up being harmful in some mm -hmm. way, it could end up being harmful in the sense that there were some things that were not quite true, and were a little bit more along the lines of kind of propaganda, basically. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I found myself saying, you know, reading about, for example, cannabis and hearing about how it's going to do all kinds of terrible things and you should absolutely stay away from it. And then, you know, seeing my friends and also experimenting myself with it at the mm-hmm. time and not dying and not going crazy and so on. And um, and so I, I guess I then wondered what else was true and not true about mm-hmm. these drugs, you know? Yeah. So I think that uh, a little bit of, uh, I think honesty is key because as you yeah. said, kids are smart. They have phones, they can look things up and uh, see if you're lying to them or not. And people don't like being told what to do, I don't think. And um, yeah. But having the information to make good choices, that's the key uh, aspect of this, I think. Exactly the point. That's what I say, Mike. I'm providing you with the information you should have to make your best choices for yourself. And the other thing that resonates a lot with teenagers is I talk about watching out for your friends, Mm. right? Talk about how, you know, anyone whose consciousness is in any way changed by by a drug, whether it's cannabis, alcohol, and they're not really all completely awake or completely alert is at risk for being the victim of an assault. And we have a responsibility to help our friends. They're also at a risk of, of it being in an accident, not even just car accidents, but riding a bike, walking in the freezing cold. I talk about how like almost everyone has gone to a party and had too much and people get embarrassed and scared and they try and solve the problem on their own. And that's probably where they're at the biggest risk of danger and why we should, why we should help each other. And that actually resonates with teenagers very well. Mm-hmm. It's keeping an eye out for, you know, their friends and their, their fellow peers. Yeah. That's really good. I mean, I'm even imagining people who are listening who are just going to take some of the advice, not that you're giving advice in that sense, but some of the things that you've learned and actually apply that as well. And I do appreciate how you put that in context because you said at the beginning that you were experimenting, you weren't exactly sure how it would go, you were nervous. So it seems like you gave yourself space to learn that as well, which I think is key and actually just ties into, you know, what we heard about from Steve and Steve in your bio as well, just having that learning process and really taking the time to see what's effective and what resonates with people. So I think that's huge. Yeah, it took a while with the teenagers, but I, I kind of finally got, I practiced on my own kids for a while. They're like, mom, we're sick of hearing it. I'm like, Too yeah, bad. that's the best. That's the most critical and most helpful audience though. If they're willing to go there with you, because they'll tell you straight up whether it's uh resonate or not. And I can, I mean, I can tell also that you have a lot of um, authenticity about it as well. Just being realistic about the situation. I know that definitely will resonate with the groups that you're speaking to. And and we have a lot more data than, you know, you know, experimenting with drug use in the 80s. I understand that completely. But, you know, it's now 2020s and we have, you know, 40 years of data. Mm-hmm. So we really now go in with data. Yeah. Um, and and we, you know, we have all of this. We have this incredible just treasure chest of information and, um, and an audience wants to hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely agree. Well, in a lot of ways, you know, you all are preaching, I'm preaching to the choir in a sense, because this is, this is what you are all both passionate about and clearly you've taken initiative and having good science communication. But if you remove yourself from the equation for a moment and just think about society at large, let's go, let's go a little bit smaller. Let's just think about the scientific and medical enterprise. That's probably not the right word to use, but I'll use it anyway. How well do you think we actually communicate about science? to the general public and those around us. Not you all as individuals, but just more globally. Steve, you look like you're ready to jump in. <laughs> yeah, I think we need to do way better, um, is the long story short. Um, you know, part of the issue here is that uh, it's one of the realities that people may or may not be familiar with with, with regard to science, in the, at least in the United States, is that, um, you know, so for example, we study addiction and we are funded largely by the National Institutes of Health, which, um, and, and specifically by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, mm. um, which is, uh, 
ultimately means that the research we're doing should have a specific application to health in humans, um, to help treat people with addiction, for example, or to identify risk factors for addiction and so on. And I think a lot of our research does try to do that. But I think there's also a lot of research that is funded by the National Institutes of Health that may sort of be um, described as being coming, you know, perhaps we'll come up with the next cure or the next breakthrough, um, but in fact, is really basic science. And I think that's okay. Like, I think that ultimately, with the brain is such a mystery and, and the how psychiatric disorders work and why one person has one and one doesn't with seemingly similar genetic predispositions and environmental experiences and things, it's, it's very mysterious. And, and I think it is, it's just the fact that we need to understand how the brain works better in the first place. And not everything we're going to do is going to have health impacts in the short term. And I think there's some, some uh, tension there because ultimately the National Institutes of Health is funded by the federal government and for mm. health purposes. And so, um, and it's sort of an uncomfortable fact that when we tell politicians that we're doing basic science, that's probably not gonna have short-term benefits to, to Americans. Um, that is maybe, maybe we get cut, the budgets get cut faster mm. and things like that. And so there's mm -hmm. this little like sort of, um, I don't quite wanna call it a fiction, but I think a little bit of a, um, a failure on our part to be, open about this mm. reality. And I think the downside of it is, is something that probably most of us have experienced when you see on the news that the new breakthrough for whatever is out there and, you know, it's going to change everything and then it doesn't, mm -hmm. or, you know, this, whatever it is, eggs are good for you, eggs are bad for you, that kind of stuff. It just makes it seem like science is just, you know, up, up for grabs. Like anyone could have their own opinion. It's just as good as a scientific finding. And that's not the case. And I think mm -hmm. we need to be better about communicating the fact that science is imperfect is mm -hmm. a process. Being wrong, making a, a guess that is wrong and is proven wrong is called progress. Mm -hmm. And that's not failure. It's actually a, it's actually how we make progress. Mm -hmm. um, these are the kinds of things I think we scientists need to be a little bit more, um, a little bit better at conveying to the general public. Yeah, really well said. A follow-up question, because you've given some concrete examples. Do you have thoughts, either of you, on how we actually do that as scientists, like what might be some effective practice? And I realize I'm getting into kind of behavioral science and, you know, organizational psychology, not even organizational, but just community psychology and those types of things. But curious if you all had any thoughts on that. Addy hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm serious, though, in that this is the kind of, you know, cross cutting conversations that I think really can resonate with different audiences. Maybe mm -hmm. someone finds your podcast through, um, through a faith-based um, uh, avenue. Maybe some are neuroscientists, some mm -hmm. are coming from, you know, there's a lot of different places that mm -hmm. you end up watching this podcast or listening to this podcast. And that then exposes people that are not necessarily, or sort of think neuroscience is too complicated or something mm -hmm. with, you know, the kind of conversations that you're having here, I think it can potentially make a, a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. I definitely appreciate that. And to share a story, I mean, I have seen that as well, because as you know, as I've done kind of the, the standard academic thing of talking to different schools, I've had faculty members who've told me, oh, I have, you know, I have a sister who's not a scientist who told me about your podcast. So it does seem like in those ways, it is at least penetrating into different audiences and people are picking it up and having conversations that they might not have otherwise. So that's definitely encouraging. And even though I laughed at it, I didn't expect you to say that, but <laughs> still definitely encouraging. Yeah, what about you for answering just the question of how, and then maybe going back after that to the question of if we do a good job at all. And I actually think they they fit together because you know mm -hmm. I like the example of eggs are good, eggs are bad. You know that's part of the the problem is that you know when it comes to when it comes to just sort of like 
boiling science down into little bitty sound bites, it doesn't work, right? Because it's complicated, right? Eggs are so good for some people, bad for other people. I always, you know, I do also give some, um, I do some CME courses on medicinal cannabis to other mm. uh, physicians. Mm-hmm. And, you know, does cannabis cure everything? No. Is it completely harmless? No. And so you know, it's complicated. So, you know, can, for example, cannabis is, is good for, or it, it can help with uh, pain, anxiety, and insomnia. That's great if you're treating a patient with multiple sclerosis or with cancer, but not if you're treating an 18 year old with ADHD. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, you the problem is, is we know a lot more, but it's complicated and it's very hard to just sort of parse it down into one little tiny, uh, you know, three line article or one little tiny, you know, bit on a, on a news channel. Mm -hmm. And so it really does require forums in which you can have longer conversations and sort of explain the nuances. Mm -hmm. So we do need to have more sort of patience on the part of um, society at large with science, because it's not so simple anymore. Yeah, Yeah, that's very well said. I mean, that theme that you're mentioning too, is just being able to slow down I guess the conundrum is how do you slow down in a society that is only speeding up? Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, in some ways, I would say, I, you know, I'm guilty of kind of trying to at least use that to an advantage as well. I mean, you all might know we actually have some, like we launched a TikTok channel too, which is more soundbite, but trying to at least craft a way to at least pull in enough to give something that sounds, but not maybe full because you can't always get into nuances and knowing how to do that. I mean, I think in some ways too, what I've heard from others is just, um, and Dion, this gets to your work too, but the utility of actually starting in schools too, where you can actually incorporate this into kids' language early on. Um, so one example, I had an opportunity to speak to um, all the um, superintendents and boards of education in the state of Connecticut a few months back, and to hear some of the teachers who were there also talk about the ways they're incorporating some of the language in elementary school. And having mm-hmm. the kids think about the prefrontal cortex and regulating emotions. So like at, at that point, there's more time to kind of really nurture that understanding, not to say that we should give up on adults, um, but it's a, it's a very different <laughs> type of conversation in terms of speed of conversation, attention span, willingness to listen and all the other things that as adults, we've learned to, um, what's the best way to put it? Conditioning is, is one aspect of it, but just having, I'm using all these words incorrectly. It's not hardwired, but I feel like we act as if it's hardwired. We have so many thoughts that we're like, this is the way the world is. Um, I mean, we do that as scientists, <laughs> we do that in society. And to really have time to kind of break that up and start all over again, I think is important, but in some ways easier to do with younger folks who are more open to actually hearing those things, especially when you come um, with that authenticity uh, that the other mentioned. So I feel like that was a little bit of a tangent, but. <laughs> the other thing I think that, um, that we can do is as, as, as neuroscientists or scientists mm-hmm. is to, um, is to kind of try to open up the field to more kinds of people, mm-hmm. to diverse perspectives, yeah. to diverse populations of people so that we can, you know, you know, I mean, I guess like the way science is often perceived is like, you know, you have some egghead in a lab coat or something and they're just, you know, not something that I do. That's not a person like me. 
And I think when you start to to it, it, you know have people interact with with these with kids of, of coming from different backgrounds and things, and can, who then can bring in their own perspectives and and ideas, new ideas. Um, this is this is another path forward. I think is to is to really try to um, you know, try something a little different. You know, I would argue that our neuroscience that we've had so far has not been very successful at helping people, or not as much as it could. And I think this might be part of the problem: is we are a little bit too heavily focused on the exact thing that you know we've always studied. Um, and I think we um, we need new ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really well said. And Deanna, I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot here, but as Steve mentioned, that makes me think of the philosophy talk that you gave at an addiction conference to neuroscientists and how much of a shift that was. And that's, I mean, that's why Steve and I had such a long conversation afterwards, because forcing us to think about things in a different way that we don't always think about, although I feel like some of it was there, but when most of us just don't articulate it or take the time to actually delve into that. So I'm curious if you you know, on the spot, we want to share at least some of the things that you've been thinking about around those realms. So just as one example of integrating from different perspectives. Yeah, so when I, I was asked to give that talk, because I my undergraduate degree is in philosophy. And mm -hmm. when I was asked to give the talk, my first reaction was like, yeah, sure, why not? And then I thought about it. I'm like, what am I going to say? <laughs> and honestly, like I spent probably I spent many months working on that talk. I was, mm -hmm. it was really like, like, you know, thought long and hard about it. Cause like, I, like, I don't know what I'm going to say. And it actually had a real change in my career thinking about that talk, because what I really tried to think about in that talk was, what do we mean when we think of bad? What do we mean when we think of bad behavior? And we think of you know, injury to self or injury to others. And so I try to take examples of psychiatric disorders that involve harm to others. Mm. And the top of that list is you know, antisocial personality disorder and pedophilia. And I ask myself, you know, are these, are these brain disorders? And um, did a lot of research on them, have started a new project looking at antisocial personality disorder, mm -hmm. view it as being antisocial and a personality disorder. But really, if you break it down into its pieces, it comes down to impulsive, impulse control, impulsivity. And I think there's a lot of data to suggest that, it, that there's um, difficulty understanding social situations mm -hmm. in most have antisocial personality disorder they don't understand the situation well and when it doesn't go in the way that they expect it to the reaction is anger and we all have situations in which we have a, a social interaction that doesn't go the way we expect it to and sometimes we react with sadness or shame or embarrassment or anger mm -hmm. and when we react with anger it's because we think we're right so when you and I have a social interaction that doesn't go well and it, we, we react with something other than anger, we think that, oh, maybe maybe we're wrong, right? Mm. So somebody who reacts with anger tends to not understand what happened. And so I've been trying to do more research in antisocial personality disorder, looking at impulsivity and social cognition. Mm -hmm. So trying to start that up. And then I also, in that talk, I talked about pedophilia, which was, that was tough. You know, like I asked myself the question, is pedophilia a brain disorder? And I think I mentioned like my first reaction was like, Lord, I don't know. And I don't want to know. Mm -hmm. and the reaction was, I really don't want the FBI banging down my door. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've, I've been looking up and, and reading more about it. It's deeply mm -hmm. understudied. Mm -hmm. And honestly, you know, we, we shy away from it, but it is a brain disorder. And honestly, what would be the worst that happens if we were to find a treatment? There may be fewer future victims, mm -hmm. and yet we still can't get our head around it. It's completely understudied. It's underfunded. There hasn't been a grant funded since 2008. Mm. What's interesting to me about pedophilia, and this is a study I want to do down the road, although hopefully no one's listening from my institution because I think they'll have a freak out if I do this study, but 
there is some hints to suggest that there's a lot of overlap between obsessive thinking and mm. pedophilia. And I wonder if we could look at it more from the perspective of OCD, um, mm. especially at least in, in patients who want treatment, which is the place to start. Mm -hmm. So even though I mostly do neuroscience and addiction, and certainly, you know, antisocial personality disorder has a lot of overlap with addiction. And I think pedophilia does too. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of substance use. We don't really know. Um, I'm starting to move and, and look and see if we can get beyond just thinking of these as being fixed bad brains into thinking like, can we break it down into the symptoms? Because we know how to treat some of these symptoms. Yeah, that's really, really well said. And I appreciate it. I mean, there's so many pieces that you brought up too, just even in terms of, you know, find out for what, what Stephen was mentioning about the ways that we communicate, but then even a layer beneath that, what do we actually think about and investigate and study and what do we shy away from and all the reasons Steve, you look like you might have a uh, comment to jump in with. Yeah, um, I mean, it's just fascinating. And, and obviously, like, you know, pedophilia, I think, is not something we do talk about very much as a scientific field. And I think the reason is because the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, disgust or, mm -hmm. you know, these maybe people are evil or there's something like really, you know, bad about them and so on. And that's the case in, in a very real way. Um, and I would say that that is, to some extent, also the case with addiction. Many times we, even though we know that there is ultimately in some way, addiction is a brain disorder as well. Uh, it does cause people to do terrible things to other people and to themselves, certainly. And I think that's also a little bit an aspect of a lot of a psychiatric disorder. There's something wrong with you. That's like a bad thing. There's something bad about you. And I don't think we really have that impression of other types of brain disorders like Alzheimer's disease, for example, or mm -hmm. Parkinson's disease. I don't think anyone really is frequently blaming those people and thinking they're they're bad because their brain is broken and it's causing them to have um, you know lots of problems. And I'd argue that's because we understand those disorders a little bit better. We have something that's biological that it like actually causes it. Whereas in, for example, addiction, people are just making bad choices. And that is the disorder in some ways. And that's you know, hard to get your head around how this thing could be, you know, how a person can, you know, kind of have free will and yet still be controlled by their, you know, brain in some way. And mm. I don't know, it's just, these are really tough topics to wrestle with. And obviously, especially for, for something as sensitive as, as pedophilia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely, like, even as I'm listening to both of you talk, this kind of ties everything back together because it speaks to both how much more we need to be talking about and thinking about and investigating these things. So if we're not even doing that, how can we actually communicate it to the public if we can't even have those conversations ourselves? So, you know, Deontay here, what you're already wrestling through and trying to think about that type of work, I think is so important. And it gets back to, I mean, the work that we have to do internally in a sense, and also externally, not that any of us can do it on our own, but something that we kind of have to do in collaboration uh, with one another. So, I mean, I think this is, it's helpful because it's a good, it's a challenge point. It speaks to the hope that can come from that, but also the reality of the fact that there's still work to be done in a lot of ways. And certainly, you know, when it comes to antisocial personality disorder, which I mean, you know, most of my participants are in my studies, well, most all have substance use disorders and a mm. fair number really do have either antisocial personality disorder or on in that sort of range of things. And I don't mean people who completely lack, we, we often think of antisocial personality disorder as completely lacking empathy. That's not actually really the case. There was a really nice study done recently that interviewed 3000 people with antisocial personality disorder and only 20% reported symptoms like lack of empathy, hurting cruelty to animals and bullying. 
Mm-hmm. Most of the symptoms are things like, you know, not paying rent, not following through, quitting a job without a job to follow up with, um, you know, stealing, you know, certainly behaviors that are, are problematic, but aren't necessarily sort of like, a, you know, a, a monster-like lack of empathy or sympathy. Mm-hmm. And so I do think we have an obligation for this patient population because studies show that 40% of patients with opioid use disorder have ASPD. And Mm. if we can't treat this part of it, then 40% of people may not respond to our treatments. To bring it back to rodents, I think one thing that we do need to be looking at, and and something that I think is happening in the rodent field, y'all have to tell me more, is sort of looking at the role of of social stress and social Mm. status and social and how that fits. And when it comes to substance use disorders, comorbidity is a huge issue, anxiety, depression, ASPD, ADHD, but all of those comorbidities have in common um, impaired social function. Mm. So I think that's one thing that runs across psychiatric yeah. disorders that could, be easy, that could be modeled in animal studies and really, and really help us. Yeah. Yeah, and we frequently, I will say as the as an animal researcher, um, we frequently don't do that. And I, and I think that's really, I, I couldn't agree with you more that this is a huge aspect of human life, of all these disorders you're talking about, and also of rats' lives. And I don't know if they have disorders or not, but they certainly suffer from social isolation, for example. They care what other rats think of them, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, how could it be the case that that's irrelevant for the kind of neuroscience studies we're doing? It, it seems impossible. But I, and I, I argue that the real reason, the main reason why we don't uh, study these. We, I mean, I think there's a lot of neuroscience would agree with that statement, but we still don't study it. So why? Um, maybe one of the reasons is simply that it's it's hard. It's more in, it's more inconvenient to add those variables into your studies. There's not a lot of interest from funding sources to do these again basic science kinds of questions to try to understand these more difficult um, but probably extremely important factors. Um, so yeah, I think there's a there's a growing, as you said, a growing group of people that are starting to realize that we are simply missing a huge part of the puzzle here if we're studying rats in solitary confinement and seeing how much they take drugs, which they don't know are illegal. They're not illegal for them. They're not. They don't know anything about the health consequences. Why wouldn't a rat take drugs in my lab? You know, mm. there's ways we can get at that. We can say, you know, you must choose between hanging out with a buddy and taking some drug, for example. Yeah. Now we're in the ballpark of the kind of choices people are really making when they're addicted. Yeah. Yeah. Really well said. Well, this has been a great conversation uh, in true form. I think we've covered a lot of ground in terms of the work that you're both doing in research, um, and, but then also in community and in society. And I think you also have nicely given a lot of challenges uh, to folks as well. So I will say by by way of story, it has been nice, and this goes back to Steve's comment about the Addy Hour, but it's been nice to see the ways that people have actually been using the podcast, whether that be like a loose journal club type of thing where you know institutes are watching it and having a conversation in small groups afterwards, or universities have reached out and actually want to use episodes for courses and things like that. Um, so I mentioned that because I think a lot of what you both have talked about would be really helpful for people to actually incorporate into a classroom setting or into a journal club setting or a research discussion to really think about where are the points that we really need to kind of push things forward, both within our research endeavors, but in society um, in a larger way as well. So obviously you both are here, so you can disseminate the, uh, the podcast to those in your spheres of influence. But I mean, there's ways I think that we could actually even do that more because just because of all the important topics that you both have brought up, which I think are really relevant and important for us um, on a much broader scale. So definitely appreciate the ways that you both have done that. 
Um, any closing words that you want to leave uh, with audience members? I'm going to leave it wide open because there's lots of stuff that we've talked about and directions you could take things. But Deanna, you oh, want to start? Yeah. Um, so you you mentioned that you were doing some some TikTok videos, and honestly, I think TikTok is a great way to go. Like, I think TikTok can handle you know what I was talking about, like sort of like complex, um, you know, that science is complicated. Mm -hmm in little bits at a time like you know, some tiktok videos have misinformation but there are also some that just sort of like in a short period of time can explain like you know the importance of i don't know like you how allergies work or dental mm -hmm. health, yeah. Or mental yeah. health. And so you know it, it can you can break you can break complicated scientific conversations down into into bits that can fit into short formats mm -hmm. i think i mean it's a challenge but i think it's it's doable yeah well i'm glad you feel that way <laughs> <laughs> that helps as we're continuing to uh, to endeavor to do that. So that's great advice. Yeah, I guess um, you know, not not everyone can be great at everything. So a lot of scientists are fantastic at their research, are fantastic at you know lots of aspects of their life, mm. writing papers, grants, etc. But maybe they're really bad science communicators, and that's okay. You know, not everyone has to do everything, and that's why mm. I think we need to value a bunch of different kinds of skills, not just the ones that are how much money can you get on grants and how many papers and what impact the high, high profile journals and things like that. That's mm -hmm. fine. And it's important. But, but, you know, we need to have uh, also people that can actually do a TikTok channel that kids will want to hear, mm. <laughs> that can actually communicate and across disciplines, across a kind of perspectives like you are here with this mm. podcast. Uh, you know, this is this is something that I'm really very happy that you are performing the service. And I'm, you know, as I said before, honored to be, you know, play a tiny role of the 41st episode of it here. Uh, we need to do more of this and, and thank mm -hmm. you for uh, leading the way. Of course. Well, as, as you know, because you saw my uh, newsletter this week, I feel like this is a huge collaboration just with folks like you, so many people who've come on the podcast to really share, because I think that's also something that resonates with people to be able to hear something about one topic from a whole bunch of different perspectives. And it goes back to both of the things that you all have mentioned. So it's been an honor for me as well. This has been a really, really fun conversation. And, you know, I'm saying that with sincerity that I hope people really amplify what you all have talked about today, because there really is a potential for this to really kind of transform how people are thinking about things on a day-to-day -day basis and big picture as well. So thanks to both of you for your, uh, your support, your willingness to jump on and for everything that you shared with the listeners today. Great. Thank you. It's great Thank to be you. here. Of course.